everyone. Welcome to Zonan Canada. I'm your host, Jesse Betteridge. You're listening to part two of the retrospective on Gundam Wing. Zonan Canada retrospectives focus on specific anime series that have had a unique cultural impact in Canada. And Ian and Pan have joined me in an extended conversation to explore that. Uh, if you haven't listened to part one of this retrospective, please go listen to that episode before you tune into this one. And just a note that like the previous episode, Ian still kind of sounds like a robot in parts of the conversation. Unfortunately, there wasn't really anything I can do about that, but I don't think you'll have any trouble comprehending him. Anyway, back to the show. You know, part of the script writing that I hate about this show, it's a, it's a real pet peeve of mine. That whenever a character says a joke, and it's one of the rare, maybe a rare moment of humor from a character... Mm-hmm. Another character will respond, that's a very funny joke. <laughs> that, that annoyed me at, that annoyed me even then. Like, what the hell? The show has a weird sense. It has a weird sense of humor. I think there's humor in the show, but... Maybe, maybe that's something to look at when we're talking about the Japanese production of the show. I think it's always important to note that Gundam Wing was the follow-up to G Gundam uh, in Japan. And I'm not entirely clear on what the reception of G Gundam was I know that if you were in anime online communities back at the time that Gundam Wing was airing, uh, there were a lot of strange opinions going around about the different Gundam shows, which no one had actually seen, um, which are a big contrast to what the opinions on those shows are now that most of them are actually available for people to watch. One thing you'd hear a lot, apart from the fact that Yoshiyuki Tomino was a brilliant visionary director that no one else has been able to even come close to topping in any Gundam production ever, um, which is not something you ever hear anymore, is that uh, G Gundam was like a really maligned series for deviating from uh, the, the Gundam, uh, the, the, like the Gundam template so much, which it did. Um, I mean, the sh- apart from having space colonies and and Mecha, there's really nothing that connects Gundam with any or Gun- G Gundam with any other Gundam series. Um, but and I, I haven't seen much of it, but it's certainly not a bad show at all. But I kind of get the impression that Gundam Wing was trying to differentiate itself from G Gundam, which is a very humorous, over the top um, kind of series. And I know a lot of the staff of G Gundam worked on Gundam Wing and. Uh, Sumizawa, or uh, Katsuki Sumizawa, who, he was the scenario writer for, or the story editor for, for Gundam Wing, has commented that uh, Gundam Wing borrowed a lot from G Gundam in the idea of having a team, uh, although it was more of a Sentai-style kind of kind of team. And I think that was a big part of the, the show's yeah. appeal in the West, is that it had the Sentai format, where you have five easily identifiable, almost, almost color-coded characters, not quite, uh, which people had seen before in Power Rangers and Sailor Moon. Uh, but I, I find it interesting that he he seems to draw that connection to G Gundam. But apart from that, the series is not really like G Gundam at all. Yeah, um, it's probably a good time to point out that in terms of the Bandai toy department, mm-hmm. what their edict was for this show was you have to have a five-person team. And they they gave the detailed specifications of Wing Gundam, Death Scythe, and Heavy Arms. Everything else was left up to the director and writer. Oh, that's all what well, the toy department wanted, and everything else was left to the writers and directors' devices. Yeah, it's notable that, um, and you know, when we when we watched Gundam Wing on YTV, um, we we got translated credits in the opening credits, which is something you don't see in uh, in, in Western animation or even localized, excuse me, localized anime openings very often. So uh, you know, the names of the production staff were very prominent: uh, Masashi Ikeda. Um, was credited as the director of the series. Also, no- also notable that uh, character designer Shuko Murase, who I think he was the second or third name you see in those credits, um, he would go on to be the director of Witch Hunter Robin. Um, so lots lots of interesting connections between uh, the early anime and, and uh, early bionic shows in Gundam Wing here, because uh, they were all they were all done by Sunrise basically. But uh, Masashi Ikeda was actually not the director from the entire series. And, uh, Ian, maybe you can tell us the story behind that one. So, Masashi Ikeda, um, he worked with the story editor Katsuki Sumiyazawa. Uh, they had a, they had a really, really difficult production schedule. Scripts were being rushed. Um, Sumiyazawa would have about two days to write scripts. Uh, Ikeda started writing scripts himself, um, to help with the production. But also, Ikeda deviated from 
from the story that was set out in the beginning. Mm-hmm. So when Sumiyazawa submitted his writer's script for episode 10, which is a very famous episode, rather good episode of the show, I should say, mm-hmm. which has a famous ending of Wing Zero being blown up. That, I'm sorry, that wasn't in the script. Oh. Okay. So, um, Ikeda added that in the storyboard. He took, uh, it was not planned. Yeah. It was decided this was the best this was something he wanted to do, so he did it. Yeah, he he totally went rogue, and the episode was better for it because it's su- it's such a like a it's it's such a clincher that they added the end there, um, and it, it really leaves you hanging for what's going to happen next. Uh, episode ten is definitely a highlight in the series, but uh, yeah, he was fired later on for basically for having the the gall to do that. I didn't realize until recently that. Directors have carte blanche to rewrite scripts in the storyboard stage, which is very different from Western animation. Very different. With, with the exception of, of board-driven cartoons, which may or may not even have a screenplay. Um, but this is something that's happened to Smiyazawa again when he worked with no, no, no other than Yoshiyuki Tomino on Brain Powered. <laughs> um, Smiyazawa wrote a real a script that Tomino really liked. And in fact, Tomino called Smiyazawa's wife and, and told, and told her how much he liked the script. But then Smiyazawa watches the episode and he finds that none of his script is still in the episode. It's all, it was all, it was all rewritten. Mm-hmm. So, so the last credit episode that had his involvement at all was episode 30, which is also the, ep- which he wrote. And it's also the, imp- the episode that introduces Dorothy Catalonia. Oh boy, Dorothy. <laughs> Yay. So if you notice in like the twenty or so episode twenty or so episodes they have with that character, plus her brief appearance in the movie, you can sort of sh- see how she herself is emblematic of of no one's of a lot of issues surrounding what the vision is for this show mm-hmm. and who, and what the hell is going on. Yeah, I think from a writing perspective, the the big problem with Dorothy is that more, like you you can criticize Relina um, for in many cases be, being a or being depicted as a walking naive political position, and it seems that Dorothy just kind of drives that or makes that problem even worse because she's set up as basically nothing more as a um nothing more than a a foil to that. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> And I know apparently there was a period of time where Smiyazawa himself left the show, mm-hmm. but I can't. Looking at the episode credits, I can't find a stint of time long enough that would indicate this block of episodes were clearly not written by Smiyazawa. Um, regardless, it got to a point where the producer said, "Please get me off the show. Please fire me. I want to leave." Oh. Um, the Hanshou's shows at Sunrise or Bandai basically said to him, "Well." There is no precedent for firing a producer. What we can do is fire a director. So, so yeah, Masashi Ikeda was fired, and the the funny thing is that even though he was fired, he was not removed from the credits. He's still he is still credited as the director for the entire series. But uh, after about episode twenty nine or thirty, uh, Shinji Takamatsu uh, took over as director for the series. Yeah, if you're not familiar with Shinji Takamatsu, he is a very workmanlike uh, kind of director. He still he still tends to pump out I think about one se- one show every season or two, um, usually fairly straightforward manga adaptations but yeah he actually he 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 directed um basically half of gundam wing uncredited was he was he credited in any role in that series during that time just as for just as for artist on episode 34 with shinichiro watanabe yeah that's it yeah but we can tell we can tell from the episode credits that there was a there was definitely an overhaul with the storyboard artists because you have names like Shinichiro Watanabe and Goro Taniguchi popping up mm, yeah, when yeah. they weren't bef- And from the look of the show, I would say. I, definitely when they get into space, it look, in the space for the, last arc, for the last arc, it looks like a different show. Yeah. Well, the last, the, the last arc, no, uh, about the time that, that White Fang and Can show up, it, uh, it definitely kind of, the series finally slows down a little bit. The thing, the thing about Gundam Wing is that it's very briskly paced, which I think is, adds to a lot of its appeal. Um, especially with Western fandom that tends to criticize anime for being too slow-paced a lot of the time. But 
it makes your head spin. You can't keep up with what's going on a lot of the time, uh, unless you you have an iron will. Um, it seems, but it, 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 when it gets to that last arc, the show slows down. It kind of falls into the um, uh, the the Zeta Gundam formula, where you have three factions in their own ships, kind of battling it out in space. And and you know, it. I I I, I thought the last arc was okay. They uh, they kind of do the best with the uh, with, with everything in in lined up the way it is at that point. Um, but yeah, it definitely it definitely takes a turn around that point uh, when well, you're seeing the production the new the new production staff kind of settle in to finish it off. Yeah. Well, maybe this is a good time to ask what are our favorite arcs of the show because this is a very arc this is a very arc contained show with different philosophies and tones through the various Antarctica arc versus the Sand Kingdom arc versus the first space arc and the second space arc. So do we do we think of the show that way, or or do you guys have favorite arcs of the show? Um, I think I I, I don't I don't know I don't think I can really pick an arc that I like. I guess the the, the second space arc, if I were to pick one arc, I, I found that was the part of the show that worked best. If we look at specific episodes. I do li- now. Okay, so what one concept of the show we haven't talked about yet is the um the zero system, which is uh the closest that this show gets to having an equivalent to the new types from the original Mobile Suit Gundam. Um the zero system is not is sort of like other things that come up in the show. It's not really well introduced. You know, at near the halfway point we have Catra finds the specifications for the the wing zero. Um, and then just kind of disappears for a couple episodes and then comes back with the Wing Zero fully constructed, uh, with this haunted cockpit that, um, kind of optimizes the, uh, the, the skills of the soldier piloting it. And I actually, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a concept that doesn't really work. Um, they don't really do a good job introducing it because, you know, you have, you have the five scientists who, apparently designed the thing but never actually built it and it's a mystery of how the thing was actually constructed at all but i find that they do some interesting things with it i quite liked i think it was episode 32 when uh duo was encountering that oz soldier who had uh who had commandeered the the wing zero and that yeah that was that was a really that was i thought i thought that was one of the strongest episodes um yeah uh, because they they actually do some interesting things with the way the 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 zero cockpit sort of influences the the mind of the pilot and and gives them visions of of negative outcomes for their actions um interestingly the zero the zero system is not mentioned in in endless waltz that seemed to be something they didn't want to explore any further when i rewatched it i wound up enjoying the the parts with the the zero system a lot more than i thought i would i think my favorite parts um i really like episode seven Mm -hmm. i think in hindsight episode seven is the first really good episode of the show Maybe it's the maybe it's the only maybe it's the first episode of the show that's any good at all. Uh-huh. Um, you can make that argument. Episode uh, seven's the one with the coup, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very unique by modern anime standards because we don't get many fifty-two episode series anymore. Yeah. We're not as accustomed to watching those, so even so, it's really it's quite a feat for them to do such a major storytelling twist seven episodes into a fifty-two episode show. It's something that, frankly, I think maybe Gundam Seed could have had a little bit of, just some some sort of really, really nice re- reversal right in the first thirteen episodes would have been would have been neat. Yeah, the, the fir- um, yeah the first half of Gundam Seed, I when I I also watched that recently. It's very well constructed, but it doesn't really you know give give any surprise twists or or, or again reversals or anything like that until you get well into the second half of the series yeah. um so it, it, that that is definitely something that's a little more refreshing in, in gundam wing you have that big big twist that takes place very fairly early in the series which you don't see often in in shows that are this long so i think one of the joys of early gundam wing is all the fallout with the um with the coup and noin's new positions mm-hmm. and trait and sex getting the tall geese and um attacking these attacking these remote locations where where the United Earth Sphere Alliance still holds the flag, that, that's some really interesting stuff, uh-huh. I find. And it dissipates a little bit when they go into space. And then I'd say with the Sand Kingdom arc, you can kind of take it or leave it. I mean, there's there's big lo- there's big logical problems with that, but definitely the fall of the Sand Kingdoms are really. I think it's a really powerful episode. They get aboard with a nail in it. So I'm still rewatching this for the first time in like 15 years or 
Something like that. Yeah, so I don't know if I can 100% answer that, but what I can say is that for me, um, I never really separated the show into arcs. Like, it was like, they're on Earth, they're in space, that kind of general mm-hmm. thing. But for me, I've always been drawn more to character moments than I have been to the, like, they're the things that really interest me. So, like, what's going on with Troa? Where is he now? What's going on with Catro? Where the heck is Wu Fei? Who knows, right? Like, I, I, <laughs> paying, paying attention to the, to the characters, um, so, I mean, like, I, I, I don't know, uh, in terms of, like, story arc, I really like the first half of the season, up until, like, the recap episodes, I think it's to 26, uh, those are the episodes that I think I've seen the most, so I guess they, I, like, enjoy them the most, and also, uh, I'm just gonna echo what you guys said about pacing, the pacing for those first, like, 26 episodes is fantastic, in my opinion, like, the, the, the story moves really, really quickly, and, uh, one of the problems I have with the with when it sort of restarts again after the recap episodes is that the the show ha- the show up to this point is about like these pilots fighting Oz for like the sake for the colonies and now at that point in the series the pilots one of the pilots like one of the pilots is presumed dead four of them are who knows where uh, they're not sure who they're fighting for anymore Oz doesn't quite exist the way it did. The show, the storyline up into that point starts to become fuzzy. Like up to this point, you know where your characters stand, what they're doing, why they're doing it. And I think after that point, it starts to get, it feels like the story's meandering, even though it's setting up like the, the next act. So I always found it sort of frustrating when I get, uh, even recently when I rewatched it to get to that point, because that speed that, that, that quick pace, all right, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, we know exactly where we're going, tends to sort of, you don't feel that anymore. Mm-hmm. It picks up again, though, it definitely does, but it, there's this sort of lull in the series, and that's sort of what's ending in my rewatch right now. But I've, I've always liked the first half of the series and the pacing of it. Okay, I think now would be a good time to get into the show's uh, philosophy on war <laughs> a little more ooh, in depth. Ooh, can I do oh, this one? Oh, boy. <laughs> And I think that uh, we, we've all made quite a few observations about this. Uh, <laughs> I, I think one key thing to hone in on is that the show never really does a good job of uh, depicting or even really humanizing uh, the people who are supposed to be oppressed throughout the series, which is the yeah. residents of the colonies. Oh boy. Um, they, they're never really characterized at all. In fact, even the, the, rebel, um, the, re- the rebel groups that form in um in the colonies they're they're never really co they're never really coherent they never have a coherent identity the closest we get is white fang at the end and that whole organization is kind of a mess you can't tell how much of it is actually rebel groups from the colonies and how much of it is um trey's faction defectors um there's an unforgettable scene mm-hmm. when i think um I think um, Howard is talking with Zex or whoever. And oh yes, Howard. What, what what was that we were saying about there being no good characters in this show? <laughs> um, oh, there's a and, lot of good characters. Okay, that's <laughs> I'm being a little crazy. I but <laughs> I don't know if it's Zex, if it's Zex, but Howard identifies that there are five factions working at once. Mm-hmm. I, I just I just think that whole scene's unforgettable in in just how straightforward the exposition is, but how utterly ridiculous the whole situation is at the time. Um, I I, I, can't, I can't even keep track. Um, the Gundam pilots, White Fang, the Romerfeller Foundation, Trey's loyalists, like it's it's a mess. Mm-hmm. I, I, but so many of them are just like kind of offshoots from the Earth Sphere Alliance, uh, which, which falls yeah. apart early in the series. But none of those, like we don't really get a cohesive uh, face to put on the colonies. The, cl- the closest we get are the Gundam pilots themselves, and the scientists. And I want to point out, I like the scientists are like some of my favorite characters in the show. I just I smile every time I see those guys all on screen. Oh, together. Yeah. They have such they have such mm-hmm. wacky designs. Um, but you know they're not really representative of the people of the colonies. They're just they're just kind of these. I know. Yeah. At, yeah. At I'm all. pretty sure that's I'm pretty sure that's intentional too. That yeah. They certainly don't represent the will of the colonists. No. Yeah. No. Well, something I'm just can I echo. You, Jesse, for a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that's always bothered me in this show, uh, especially in my recent rewatch, is how little, like, the Gundam pilots' fight is supposed to be against the injustice that is faced by the colonies, but we don't know what that injustice is, and that leads to a lot of problems. So, like, like, are they fighting for rights? Are they fighting to take back what was stolen for them? Are they fighting for social justice? None of that is ever described in any meaningful way. I think you're absolutely right. You never see 
what the material, spiritual, mental, like health effects of like this colonial occupation even is. You have no yeah. idea. And it's all this top down philosophy 101 ideology about like <laughs> what, what oppression is and what injustice is. And I think that that has, um, in my opinion, like three impacts that end up cheapening the politics and the story of the show. Uh, let's see if I can do this. The first one is that there's this, this ideology. This show is full of platitudes about war and generalization, generalizations about war that like, again, for me, they sound like they came from a philosophy 101 lecture rather than like, like, like somebody talking in your philosophy 101 class rather than like yeah, yeah, actual not, not, reality. Not, not, not the lecture, someone who, no, saw, no, the, who, who listened to one in, lecture. Yeah, it's the yeah, or it's the one dude in the class who keeps talking even though they don't know what they're talking about. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but like there's this this repeated refrain. Like you hear it from Trez, you hear it, hear it from Zex, you hear it sometimes from Hero. You even hear it from Rolina, um, you know, that, that fighting is something inherent to human nature that people crave, uh. that people need. Like even the pacifist in this show takes that for granted. Um, and I think that the only way you can have that ideology that that fighting is something inherent and, and that people do because they, they want to is if you have separated um, actual conflict from the material reality that might cause it. Right. So like that's that's one effect. Another effect is that we have and Jesse, you and I were talking about this on Twitter is uh -huh. like we have this Rumafeller Foundation running around as like conspiracy theorists rubbing their hands together, controlling all conflict in the universe. Yeah. Um, it's it's a conspiracy theory approach to how injustice works. It totally ignores actual systems of oppression. We never see actual systems of, of oppression at work uh, in the colonies or how anything like that would operate as well. The, the series starts off with, um, like, like, I think that saying that the Earth Sphere Alliance was supposed to be a, um, like a, a mutual arms pact between the colonies and the Earth that ended up with oppression of the colonies, that's an interesting starting point for that kind of thing. But instead of actually exploring that in a, in a substantial way, it just goes, oh, there's this mysterious shadowy organization pulling the strings behind everything. Everything. Yeah. And they're the cause of everything. And therefore, injustice, again, has been removed from the equation. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think the, the, the third effect of that is that we, we... Okay, so there's a point in the series, I was talking about it earlier, where the Gundams are like, who do we fight for anymore? Because the... Alliance, there's this, been this coup. The alliance has sort of been overthrown by Oz. Oz has gone through the colonies and so like tried to like liberate, quote unquote, liberate the colonies. Um, and some of the colonists are siding with Oz, and the pilots are like, "We're fighting for Oz." I mean, sorry, we're fighting for the colonies, and the colonies are okay with Oz now. So who are we fighting for? This always, this just bothers me to no extent because if your oppression is grounded in material reality, if it's if it's grounded in the way that you know, these military power um, is impacting your life, then having one military power replace another military power, you're still going to have the same, like, problems in the colonies. But because there's no conversation around what oppression actually looks like, um, we don't get that. We don't get that. Uh, we just get this, like, how do I put it? We just get this almost like, like silly ideology. And because of that, we're sort of, we're robbed of having an actual story about liberation. Yeah. We're robbed of having an actual story that is that, you know, we can those pilots should never have had this conversation of who are we fighting for? They should have known they should have known all along because it was grounded in the reality. They were fighting the injustice uh -huh. the colonists were fighting. But because that injustice is never explained, because it's it's something, something super vague. They're allowed to have this confusion of we don't know who we're fighting for anymore. And it also allows a series to go in this direction where the only options for human. It's like, let me start again. If all conflict is caused by shadowy, mysterious organizations and not actual injustice, then it becomes possible that the only options available for humankind is like total pacifism or, you know, beautiful wars fought by human soldiers and not drones. Right. Like that was become the extreme options that the show offers us. Um, and I think, again, all of this, the only way you can have, you know, fighting is something beautiful, inherent to people. This idea of a Roma filler conspiracy. The only way you can have these confused pilots going, who are we supposed to fight for? Is if you actually do this thing where you've removed oppression, you've removed injustice and what it actually is from the picture. So the show I think you were totally onto something. Um, you're, I think you're totally right, Jesse, when you're talking about how the show 
fails to address oppression and injustice in any meaningful way. And the thing is, and the thing that gets me, um, is that that's, it's only by not addressing it in a meaningful way that its plot is almost strung together. It's a huge weakness, um, in the plot of the series because it's only through ignoring that that they're able to have this war is beautiful, Romafeller foundation, whatever going on. There's a, there's a real sense of, it's a really soft show politically. Like it has tons, it has tons of philosophy and, and grandiose thought, but the actual, the actual politics are very soft mm-hmm. and, and it is an extremely timid show in the, in the fact that it's, it's shies from civilian deaths. It's, it's shies from female deaths, uh, which is both of which are kind of unusual for a kind of show. Uh-huh. And one that's trying to, trying to be more serious than, um, Gene Gundam. But, but there's, de- there's definitely that softness to it. And there's a real 90s vibe of wars are just kind of like um, egotistical skirmishes between um, between pestilent between petulant people, which is something that I know the Star Trek spinoffs at their softest would also um, try to pull. But I think the Star Trek spinoffs realize that no, you have to go more in depth with with war and the the consequences of war than what you were trying to peddle before. So it's yeah, even as a, even as um, a teenager, I was frustrated by certain aspects of it. I was I was frustrated by um, Trey's constant hammering about the um, about the woes of mobile dolls. I thought that was I thought that was ridiculous. Yeah, it as a it is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Trey's speeches, I have so much trouble with them. Like I roll my eyes through them pretty much the entire way through because he has all these theories about like. I don't know. Perfect. The perfect soldier is almost like a god, and like goes on and on, and and it always. I still am trying to understand why the Trace faction like was a thing because his main political philosophy was like mobile dolls are bad. People should be the one dying in wars, and somehow this inspires like groups of people to like break off from the main organization um, and like fight in his name. It's very odd. Uh, it's not very strong either, in my opinion. This might be something that you kind of see reflected in Endless Waltz through Mary Maya as well, because she's effectively kind of spouting out the same philosophy that Trey's did throughout the series. Um, but you just, but again, she she is a figurehead and she is sort just sort of um, uh, just sort of repeating it. And uh, I don't know if if uh, Sumizawa and the other writers were trying to kind of reflect on that through her character or reflect yeah. the way they depicted Trey's through her character. But it it does shine a, a kind of or a potentially critical light on it, um, which is something I just kind of thought of now. Also, an, another difference um, with the writing um, compared to how Western cartoons are written is that yes, Miyazawa is the head writer, but this philosophy one on one stuff he's writing for a director. The director has a vision of the show. Mm. The director tells the writer what, what sort of themes and materials he wants incorporated in the show. Um, Miyazawa actually actually used his work on Across Seven as a um, as an example of this. Oh, okay. On Across Seven, on Across Seven, he was answering Shoji Kawamori, so he had to deal with the fact that um, that music can win war. Mm. He had incorporated that into his writing. He doesn't believe it's remotely plausible, but as a, as a scenario writer for an anime, that's the those are the tasks you're assigned. You're assigned to ensure that the director's total vision is carried through. Mm. Uh, also worth noting that uh, Endless Waltz had a different director. Uh, it was neither yeah. uh, uh, Ikeda or um, uh, Takamatsu. It was uh, Yasuano Aoki. Um, actually, worth pointing out, Masashi Ikeda, who uh, was the credited director for, for Gundam Wing, he was the first director of Inuyasha for the first 44 episodes. And Yasuano Aoki, who did uh, Endless Waltz, he was the guy who directed the rest of Inuyasha, which it was, it was just funny that when we did our um, retrospective on Inuyasha, we pointed out that the change in director is kind of the point when people started to fall out of the show. Um but I, I find it interesting that you see the when you look at the approaches that we we saw in both the series and the OVA for for Gundam Wing and how they're kind of you know that kind of reflective aspect of the of the OVA. I find, I 
it's a little surprising when I when I look on it in that in that context. Yeah, Aoki was actually the main um, episode director of Gundam Wing, so he directed the first and last episodes. Oh, okay. And the smattering of the episodes is the Suramaki of Gundam Wing. Mm-hmm. Mm. To, to make also, a, to, to, to do a uh, um a Gynax uh, uh analogy, I guess. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, Pen. No, I was just gonna add throw this in there that is I keep. I feel like everything I'm saying about the show sounds kind of negative, but I want to just point out, like, I really do genuinely like this show. Um, I, I have, like, a huge soft spot for it. Uh, even if the politics make no sense and the characters are ridiculous, there's, you know, um, recently I've been, like, posting screen caps of, like, parts of the show that make no sense and sort of laughing at them and enjoying that in a, in a, in a very loving way, if that makes sense. I don't know. I, yeah, I just want to... I just want to say I like this show, even if I'm talking really negatively about it, uh, and that it's possible to like recognize a lot of the negative aspects of it and and hold that at the same time you hold like a love for it. So, Pat and Jesse, I wish you guys were there, but me and my boyfriend went to um, kind of like panel at work on this year, mm-hmm. and they screened the entire first episode in English with um, Smizawa and the producer and watching the episode. It was a total blast. <laughs> I can imagine. People were laughing every five seconds. Yeah. I was laughing my ass off while, while trying to live tweet it. It was, it was they, amazing. They, they basically what? acknowledged at that panel that the show was loaded with an unintentional humor as well. Yeah, I yeah. mean, they said, yes, we were laughing too. This is, this is kind of funny. This like, is kind of like an, a, a comedy of sorts. Well, what are you supposed to do with the invitation scene at the end of the first episode? <laughs> it's not like laugh at it. Yeah. <laughs> and know? I think... I think they owned up to that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the scene with a few episodes later with uh, Hero and Rolina dancing, where she asks him, "Are you still gonna kill me?" and he says, "Kill yeah. me, yeah." That's, just, yeah. <laughs> oh, beautiful! Such a beautiful start to a healthy relationship. <laughs> oh, oh, but I love it. Like, there's a random scene where Hero's holding a pineapple. Hero bends metal with his hands more than once. Like, and, and this, like it's supposed to be a power fantasy, and I get that, like, some of this stuff around Hero, but, like, as an adult, for me, at least, it doesn't work, and it just, it's led me to have this incredibly affectionate, mocking attitude, for lack of a better way of putting that, towards this show. Um, like, I, I absolutely love it, but I, I'm not ignoring any of the problems with it. It's oh, just, yeah. it's lovely for what it is. Well, I, th- I, think I that- like... Sorry, I like some of the some of the movie references. I liked that um, Inspector Oct, who inspects the destruction of the tall of Wing Gundam or whatever, is a um, is a total lookalike for one of the Nazis and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I also, <laughs> I also like how I think I think uh, when Rubina assassinates Lady Un, it's pretty it's a pretty straightforward parody of a scene in Doctor Zhivago. No, oh, yeah. And, um, Christine tries to um, ki- tries to kill um, his tries to kill someone. Huh. Mm. So there, I, I like I like those I like those aspects of it a lot. I I can sort of see the, the um, cleverness of um, some of the direction there. Yeah, I I think a lot of, I think a lot of the sort of inexplicable uh, appeal of the series also is what fuels the kind of alternate version of Gundam Wing that exists in the official art and in a lot of the fandom interpretations as well. Because um, they had a lot of uh, interesting art going into anime publications at the time. Can we with... talk about the yeah, amazingness let's... of that art? Oh P- my P- gosh. Pan, like... could, you, could you describe a few of them for us? I, I think you, sure, were, you were sharing them the other day. Yeah, there's like, okay, suddenly everyone's in a Western, and they're all wearing, like, cowboy outfits that are different colors. There's the episode where they're all fighting over birthday... Sorry, the episode. The picture where they're all fighting over birthday cake. Oh, yes. There's a picture where all the female characters are suddenly fairies for no apparent reason. There's a bunch of episodes where they turn, like... There's a joke that the five characters of Gundam Wing are like a boy band. There are there are pictures where they're basically boy band members or rock band members or for some reason all play stringed instruments except for Wu Fei who's broken his like <laughs> whose strings are broken in the background. <laughs> There's the amazing infamous picture of uh Zex Marquis drinking wild turkey. Like it's there's it's just like like one of the main things to remember for me when I'm thinking about Gundam Wing and its fandom um, if you go back and you look at a lot of the characterizations of of the characters, it doesn't necessarily match canon, but it does sometimes match the depictions we got in the official art. 
Um, and I think that the official art is a way to understand how people like reinterpreted or came to understand some of these characters as more than what they are in the show. And Jesse, you mentioned earlier how there's like a lack of humor in the show and the official art definitely gives you some levity, definitely gives you some fun. It also brings a, gives you a lot of quote unquote, like evidence for pairings. I mean, there's pictures of one of the pieces of official art is like, Oh, how's it go? It's got like hero and duo. It's been a while. And they're like soaking wet, but taking off their clothes at the same time, like next to like a body of water. No explanation. That's just what it is. Um, or like, again, there's the rock band picture, but the rock band picture, you have to note that everyone is shirtless and Hero has, I think Duo has his arms around Hero's neck or something yes, like that. I remember, I remember that one. That was there's cool. pictures where all five of them are having pajama parties. There's pictures yeah, where they're having like, skiing vacation. Like, yeah. like <laughs> they, they yeah. don't, they, like, this has no bearing. Uh, yeah. And my favorite picture aspect by the way of the skiing vacation picture is like i think in the background like i feel like the artist didn't know what to do with Ufei, so he's always doing something random in the background he's like building an nataku out of like snow <laughs> in the background of the picture that's like the entire thing he's doing um and sometimes you see him sort of like sidelined uh doing something random in, like again in the background he's 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 randomly holding, again, like a broken string instrument, whatever. And I think that that actually played into a lot of the ways he was written into fan fiction, especially, you know, like 17 years ago. Um, so the official art, I think, is really important for understanding fandom and fandom interpretations. And again, like there's all sorts of pictures of uh, Katra and Troa together or like basically can find any of the two. There's five main pilots. You can scramble them any way you want in terms of pairings, and you can find something, uh, official art or something in the show that will give you something to work off of um, and if you feel like pairing them. Maybe this will be the question we, we end, I end off on. Um, so <laughs> as I kind of established before, Gundam Wing was this huge mainstream success in the United States. It's I think it's probably regarded as the second most successful mecha series like ever in the United States after Robotech. Um, so it has a, a lot of, like a lot of the surface level appeal of the show itself is really grounded in the, uh, the whole fandom history there. Um, here it was much more of a centralized fandom thing. Like the show had a large fan base, um, but it didn't catch on with, the, with the mainstream with, uh, or really become like seen as a major mecha show. Do, do you think that this weird bizarro alternate, um, kind of version of, of Gundam Wing that we see in this official art and we see in fan fiction and, and the fan works and the fan culture that developed to it, uh, around it. Um, and, and of course, not to mention also the, how the voice actors had a kind of celebrity status and they were very accessible, uh, especially in Canada. Um, do you think that these elements historically are more important than the, sh- than the actual show itself? Um, I caution a little bit, put a little caution there, uh, mm-hmm. same way I did earlier with our conversations, because, you know, it's, Gundam Wing didn't come out of a vacuum. Mm-hmm. If you look at official art for a lot of different shows in the 90s, you're going to see weird pictures like this. Um, like Vaughn and Delando the, playing basketball. Ex- yeah. Exactly, that's exactly, <laughs> so it was part of, so that that's sort of there as well, and also, you know, like, Gundam Wing didn't in, invent, like, slash culture in any way, shape, or form, or online slash culture in any way, shape, or form. It was Absolutely definitely not. a big dominant piece of it. it, it I think it was one of the most time. significant gateways to it, because uh, mm. for, for people who discovered it online, at least people our age. Well, and for somebody, yeah, for people that are coming into it from, like, the anime stream of things, for example, I definitely, I, I think that there's a huge significance there, um, but I don't think that... I'd be cautious to say it's like the it's one of it's like the only the only gateway, for example, or the the because um, I mean, like the Digimon fandom was very active at the same time in doing similar things. Right. Like yeah. uh, there was a lot of there's a I'd be cautious to, to, to say that this is like the one fandom that explains a lot of behavior. I think that it, it, it borrowed from a lot of the culture that existed at the time. Um, and it, it made something new out of it. I think like, you know, we got pairing math out of this show. We got certain nomenclature out of this show. Um, the fandom definitely was very large and had a lot of fun with these pilots. Uh, and you can see evidence of that like today. Like there's still so much Gundam Wing fan fiction out there. There's still so many fan sites that persist. There's still so many people that are writing about this show, you know, all these years later because it, it still had that impact on them. Um, I've been interacting on Tumblr. There's someone who's been in this, into this fandom for like 17 years and hasn't left. 
right? So it has had a huge signi- like significance, um, but I would put it in the context of its time. Yeah. When I was at Otakon, um, Shimizawa and the producer asked the panel, how many of you, how many of us were, was this our first exposure to fandom? I'd say about 90% of a 100-plus pack room raised our hands. Yeah. And you could tell on Smizawa's face and the producer's face, they were shocked. Really? Yeah, they, they were, they were, because our context, this was our first Sunrise robot show in, mm-hmm. in North America for the most part. That goes even beyond the presentational aspects of the Toonami airing or the YTV airing. And we can look back and say, well, Maybe it would have been better if uh, 0079 aired on HBO in the 1980s. Maybe it would have been better if uh, G Gundam aired on on UPN or something in 1996. <laughs> but this was the first, and the show's Japanese context doesn't pave the way for that. So this was a show that was intended to that was not intended to give Gundam to a new birth of fans. Gundam Seed was. And Gundam Seed is very straightforward in the fact that we're going to introduce science fiction concepts to you in a way that makes a, makes a fair amount of sense and is straightforward and you can relate to in an easy in a in a conventional manner. Gundam Wing um, comes from a time comes from 1995 when there was your Macross Sevens and your Evangelions and um, Sunrise shows from ten different studios the Gaio Gaigars and all that stuff. And for us, it was our first. Mm-hmm. So we, there was more significance for us in every single episode that we saw than there would have been for any Japanese fan. Mm, great point. Uh-huh. Yeah, we figured out how um, this was my first 50 episode show. I mean, was it yours? Jesse and Pan, was it your first 50 episode show? Um, uh, well, I mean, Samurai Pizza Cats was 50 episodes. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah a, a Dragon Ball Z went on for a very long time as well. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, I, th- I think though that Gun Wing is a closed show. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. It was always intended to end at 50 episodes. It's always, it's conventionally serialized anime. Um, but just the, just the little things, how, how they use the act breaks to sometimes separate entire plots. Mm-hmm. Like the A part of the episode would be a different would be a different episode than the B plot, the mm-hmm, B plot, mm-hmm. or just learning as a as a viewer how how long running anime shows uh, incorporated the music, how mm-hmm. background music incorporated wasn't wasn't synchronized to picture, but you heard recurring pieces of music all the time, mm-hmm. you heard pieces of music that don't that don't portray a sort of science fiction aspect to it it's mostly it's mostly um funk jazz for the Mm. most part so that that was unusual and and yeah the emphasis on the appeal of the characters the the vanity shots of the mecca the the emphasis on philosophy yeah however heavy-handed or incomprehensible it might be this was clearly an emphasis that they wanted to explore because anime does explore these issues Mm-hmm. So we were taking all that in because it was our only it was our only avenue into that. It was like our first exposure to all of these pieces together at the same time. Mm-hmm. Just like Pokemon was our first anime comedy. Yeah. Really. So we well, learned again, all samurai, that. Well, samurai, samurai pizza, pizza cat. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but we learned from from the Pokemon dub because it was more faithful dub what the rhythms and practices of of the actual. Of the actual anime. Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we, ca- I don't think we can overstate the influence, but I do think it is possible to overstate how much the show itself has an appeal beyond that. Mm. Well, I think something that we only a little like touched on a little bit is the appeal of the characters themselves. Um, I think we've been focusing a lot on the plot, but the mm-hmm. characters themselves, as sometimes as as vague as they are, or as you know, they do one thing one episode and they almost contradict that the next episode. Those characters resonated with a lot of people. Like all my friends and I, I remember even at the time, we're like, "Well, this is my favorite pilot. Who's your favorite pilot?" Uh, we'd have entire conversations on theories behind like the characters' motivation or their backstories before we had episode zero or things like that. Like the characters themselves were fascinating aspects of the show that kept a lot of people watching, and that I find in my rewatch that I'm I'm interested. I'm still very interested in these characters. I'm still very invested in them. Um, and I also notice 
you know, being a, a 49 episode show, like sometimes like Relina or one of these characters will disappear for like 10 episodes and then come back. Right. Like it, it, they don't haven't necessarily made it even easy to follow the stories uh, always yeah. of what's going on with these characters, but they still had that resonance with, with their viewers. Um, so I think that that's, that's one of the elements of the appeal of the show that I think I would like to, to state as well. Well, one thing about that is that I tend to find that shows with a lot of characters may or may or may not be the best thing for a show's narrative. But I tend to find that shows with a lot of characters do generate the most buzz. So you can talk about why you like this character better than that character, or while you want to follow this character while um, while this character is doing that. I think a show like uh, Twin Peaks, which um, is in some ways a very, very contained story, um, just expands when you add all these character, a ridiculous amount of characters, like a hundred plus characters in the last in the last season. It just it creates this vibe to it that's unlike, unlike anything else. And I think that one was the same way. Mm. Okay. Um, any last thoughts? I think uh, we. Jesse, what did you think about the um, cinematography and lighting on rewatch? Mm. Um, I didn't really have any strong feeling about it. I thought it okay. I I, I thought it was uh, a, I thought usually I, I thought the general visual consistency of the show was well. Again, I, I mentioned that Shinji Ta- uh, Ta- Takamatsu was a very workmanlike director, and I found the series to be consistent from beginning to end, but. It was really lacking in standout moments of visuals, mm-hmm. I found. Uh, except, like, actually, the, the the zero cockpit stuff was the most visually interesting, with the most visually interesting segments I found. Yeah, it's, for me, this is the one show where it's not the art or the designs, it's mm-hmm. only the aesthetic of the lighting. Okay. That it's, mm-hmm. it's really, it's really, um, you can watch the show and clearly all the benefits of cell animation and how light cells is, is, is visible in a lot of episodes. Mm-hmm. Again, that's that is a bit of nostalgia talking, nostalgia for both the show and for cell animation. But this is a really, I think it's a really nifty example of what um, how you can light cells and make that really pop out in a show that isn't very dynamic or has a lot of wonderful aesthetic quality to it. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Go, go ahead. ahead go no. Go ahead, Pan. I didn't actually have anything to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I, I actually agree. I think like there's, for example, there's like a scene where Lena's standing at the window and the sun comes up and yeah. they, they, they edit that the lighting is absolutely beautiful. Or sometimes during the battles when like the light from the battle is like reflecting like in the cockpit um, and uh, like against the pilot's face. Like they, they do an amazing job, I think, with, with the materials, especially they had at the time. I was actually yeah. pleasantly surprised at how well the animation in this show held up. I've watched some other shows from the same era and it has, I have not found the animation to hold up as well. Uh, the other thing, um, maybe this is nostalgia again, is the music. I love the original soundtrack on this, this show. It is phenomenal in my opinion. Um, both the like orchestral score and I do like the character songs as well. Um, oh, the character songs. Yeah. That's, that's another, yeah. <laughs> I like them. I know it's, an, it's, but it's an anime thing. Like, yeah. like, Every every show had them, um, but I like this. The orchestral score for this is fantastic, and I I wish like I would pay good money to hear like an actual symphony orchestra pay like play this music. Oh yeah, there is one cue. Um, they re- they re-recorded um, Hero Yui's theme in 1998 for mm. the 20th anniversary Gundam concert, so it has a full symphonic arrangement with an organ. Mm. So that, that that's really neat. Um, but yeah, I would like to hear something like the um, Symphony Seed albums, which were actually recorded with the London Symphony Orchestra. Mm-hmm. Those are th- those are cool. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, for sure. No, no, I'm just I'm just saying like I would I would pay money to see this played live because I know they yeah. do a lot of concerts and like Harry well, Potter I concerts. Know, I know they won't happen at least anywhere near us. Well, but I think I think Kotani's too busy on Broken Shadow of the Colossus. <laughs> I think that's that's what but, I think but, like to say for sure. But like, like I forgot entire plot lines of this show. I'm gonna be really yeah. honest. Like I'm watching them. I'm rediscovering the music has stuck with me. I have some of these songs I have not heard in 15 years, and I will remember the entire piece of music, like this background piece of music, because it's that impactful and that good. Uh, I well, think that's why I love so it. great. 
that's what's so great about anime using canned scores, to be honest. Yeah. That all the music is tracked, all the music is pre-recorded, and then they just go with it. That's That just leads to memorable music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe, I, I think I know how we should close this episode out. Um, which of all the two mix songs that we hear uh, throughout Gundam Wing and Endless Waltz, which one is your favorite? Do you want to go first? Last uh, impression. Last Sorry. Last impression. Last Last impression. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I yeah, I like Endless Love. I think it might be a side song, but that's like my favorite of all of them. But I love Rhythm Emotion. I love uh, just communication. Yeah. Uh, All all of these songs are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Rhythm Emotion is is definitely my my favorite one. And I I, I do lament that we didn't actually get the second opening uh, in the the YTV airing. but. I think that's because Bandai didn't have the tapes available with the second opening. Uh, yeah. I think they, it wasn't yet on VHS at the time, those last episodes, so they yeah. just used... Yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Also, the anim- mm-hmm. the animation wasn't finalized for that second opening until, like, oh, no. episode, episode 48. I think they slapped yeah. that thing. I don't think they planned a second opening for that show. I think they slapped it together <laughs> and then used the last of their budget to, to <laughs> increase the quality. They did plan for, they planned for it mid-season, like 20, episode 26. But they didn't have it ready till episode 40 uh, because yeah. of the director's changeover. Um, what they did, though, was they had to hype up Rhythm Emotion, so they used it as an insert song for, mm-hmm. which was pretty unusual, pretty unusual the way they, they handled it, which obviously was meant for the commercial factors of the song coming out. Yeah, it's, ne- it's never, it's never used in any scenes that are particularly impactful. They just kind of throw it in there at the end of a few yeah. episodes. <laughs> yeah. Okay, uh, everyone, I think that, uh, that wraps us up for today. Um, so thanks for listening to Zon in Canada. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And uh, where can uh, people find you guys on social media? Um, you can find me at, at Tumblr. I'm Lilola, L-E-L-O-L-A dot Tumblr dot com. I am currently posting a ton of Gundam Wing content. So if you want to talk about Gundam Wing or laugh at Gundam Wing or critique Gundam Wing, hit me up. Uh, also, I have a cosplay Instagram at Pantastic Cosplay. So come visit me there. You can find me at um, at my Twitter handle, which is just ENRW. Okay, and you can find me on Twitter at Jay Betteridge. Uh, theme song is by Ultra Kleistron. It can be found on his album Packet Flood uh, at ultraclystron.com. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play Music, or your podcast app of choice. And leave a rating or review if you have a chance. I'd really appreciate it. If you know anyone who might like this show, please recommend it to them. See you again. good one stop me if you've heard it knock knock who's there exploding robots exploding robots who exploding robots who want you to watch then the wing fridays at 10 30